You have a lot of people who aren't Iran experts looking at this as if they were Iran experts and thinking that this is the end game. I am not at all convinced that this will be the last retaliatory action we see from Iran. It is the week of January 13th in the year 2020, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have our usual uh, group with us, Dana Struhl, former staff member at the senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, founder of the National Security Institute and its executive director, and also the former chief counsel and senior advisor at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jody Herman, former staff director at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and I'm Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and also the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we're discussing the killing of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, Uh, by the Trump administration, the various events that led up to that, the events that followed that, and where we stand right now in the Middle East in terms of U.S.-Iran relations, things that are going on in Iraq, uh, the situation with legal authorities for military action and all kinds of great issues. Let's start off with, uh, Jamil, I'm going to go to you first. Let's start off with President Trump's decision to kill uh, basically Qasem Soleimani at the same time getting Mohandas, who is the leader of all the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. Soleimani, of course, was the head of the Quds Force, which is the external military wing of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is largely the infrastructure of the uh, regime in Tehran. Was it a good decision? Are we better off now than we were before? What say you, sir? I think absolutely. Uh, you know, we uh, have been talking about the need uh, to reestablish deterrence when it comes to Iran uh, for years. Uh, for the better part of almost a decade, uh, we've been taking on the chin from Iran, whether uh, that involves uh, their uh, support of terrorist groups like Hezbollah, um, their support of uh, proxy forces in Iraq, uh, where, where over 600 American soldiers were killed uh, by uh, Iranian proxies using Iranian-delivered explosive form penetrators. Um, and so uh, enough was enough. And President Trump did the right thing uh, by uh, by killing the leader of the IRGC Quds Force, by killing the founder of Qatab Hezbollah, one of these proxy forces that killed Americans in uh, Iraq. And uh, and look, and the proof is in the pudding. You know, everyone on Capitol Hill was freaking out about the uh, the the potential for escalation, and we're going to be in a war in the Middle East. Well, newsflash: we are not at war in the Middle East right now. And in fact, to the contrary, uh, the Iranian response was fairly muted. Uh, a handful of uh, missiles aimed at U.S. facilities didn't kill anybody, um, intentionally calibrated by the Iranians to not provoke a U.S. response because President Trump demonstrated that if you hit us, we will punch you back. And the Iranians don't want to do that because the reality is that in a war with the United States, which of course would be very costly for us, the Iranians lose every single time. Jamil, all right, I, I want to, I, I largely agree with what you said, but let me push a little bit. I think, the, the, uh, at least on the Republican side, the reason this has been well received is because most Republicans on the Hill were worried that Trump was not tough enough on Iran in, in, recent, in the recent months. We had uh, Iranian attacks on a U.S. military drone. We had Iranian attacks on shipping. We had Iranian attacks on a Saudi oil facility, a huge one that's, that actually impacted the price of oil. Uh, there, were, there were real provocations from Iran that the U.S. didn't really respond to. It got a little bit hotter once um, 
the Iranians hit an American contractor in Iraq and killed also killed three Iraqi soldiers. Started to get a little hotter, but largely the reason this has been so well received on the right is because there was a perception that Trump himself was soft on Iran. True or false? No, I agree. I think that part of the challenge is has been that like President Obama before him. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't want to be involved in a major conflict in the Middle East. He's talked about uh, the need to bring American troops home, uh, the need to end endless wars, a classic Barack Obama line. Um, and so they are aligned on that issue. And so just like uh, President Obama essentially ignored uh, the attacks by Iran on American soldiers um, uh, in Iraq for years and years, uh, President Trump largely blinked when it came to Iranian provocation. Um, he didn't respond effectively to the downing of an American drone. Um, he thought about... Uh, um, um, responding with a with a with a attack on Iranian uh, soil, but he didn't do that. He ended up pulling back and allegedly using a cyber attack. Um, there was n- virtually no response to the attack on Saudi Aramco, as you point out, um, even though. Um, the U.S. sent troops to the region. And so the Iranians, uh, as they do, were looking at this saying, okay, well, we can push the U.S. so far. Let's try and push them a little further and a little further and a little further. And at some point, Donald Trump said, look, enough is enough. And he responded. He responded in a big way, a way that, to be sure, could have provoked a larger conflict. And people, you know, freaked out about that. But the reality is that it... To the contrary, it, it reestablished deterrence for once in the better part of a decade, um, and that's a good thing for U.S. national security. Dana, jump in. So I'm surprised to hear you say that deterrence is reestablished and the region is more stable because we spent hours and hours and hours together in classified facilities talking about the Iranian threat network and Iranian support for terrorism and how Iran behaves in the region. So what is very surprising to me about the discussion in Washington right now is this notion that what happened, the Iranian retaliation, against two Iraqi bases in Iraq is the end of the response, and that's it, and the Iranians are standing down. I'm not done. I know you want to talk, Mr. Jamil. So here's the thing. We have U.S. forces in very vulnerable positions in Syria. We have U.S. forces in Iraqi bases now not continuing the fight against ISIS because they are so concerned about force protection. We've flowed about 20,000 forces and additional capabilities into the Middle East since May of last year in response to the increased threats. That's presumably more vulnerability. And our partners are concerned about what's going to happen next because the line that seems to be drawn is U.S. blood spilling. So what happens when the next Iranian attack is another oil facility or a base in the UAE or another situation in Saudi Arabia? How is the U.S. going to respond? So this notion that for the time being, this is the Iranian response and it's going to hold as opposed to the Iranians having a very savvy understanding of the U.S. political time horizon and that actually the time of maximum political vulnerability for President Trump is a couple months into 2020 and that they wouldn't design something at that point in time to increase pressure on him, A, because of his pledge that we're going to get out of the Middle East, or B, that he's going to respond toughly because of this line that he drew in the sand. All right, so Dana, what I'm hearing you say is that the jury's still out. It's too soon to judge whether this has reestablished deterrence or whether this is a good idea or not. that That is my view. It, it's too soon to tell. So typically, the Iranian reaction to these sorts of events. So for them, the taking out of Qasem Soleimani is a black swan event. To presume that what happened last week is the end of their response, I see is 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 woefully optimistic at this point in time. Let's review the threats from Iran. One, it's support for regional terror. 
two, its nuclear program, three, its ballistic missile program. Does the elimination of Qasem Soleimani address in a sustainable way any of those threats? My view is no. Are all of Iran's militias and proxy across the region going to pack up and go home because Soleimani's gone? No. Clearly, the Iranians have already demonstrated that just because of his uh, elimination, they're not stopping the gradual non-compliance with their nuclear uh, commitments. And two, they've clearly demonstrated that they have a ballistic missile program and they're going to use it. None of those threats are addressed in a sustainable way that makes us more safe because of his demise. Jody. All right. So as usual, on anything related to the Middle East, I agree with Dana. No. Because because she is the most informed person on the Middle East in Washington, as far as I'm aware. But I think she's absolutely right on this score. I think the Washington reaction to what's happened over the last 10 days is a Washington reaction to what's happened over the last 10 days. So you have a lot of people who aren't Iran experts looking at this as if they were Iran experts and thinking that this is the end game. I wish it was the end game. I am not sad about Qasem Soleimani's death. Uh, but I am not at all convinced that this will be the last retaliatory action we see from Iran. And then the second thing that we haven't talked about that is an outcome of this is Iran's withdrawal from the JCPOA. And even for somebody like me, who was not a huge fan of the JCPOA, my termination now on the U.S. part and on the Iranian part absolutely increases uncertainty in the Middle East and raises the prospect that Iran could, you know, is likely to go back in, start, you know, start up its R&D machine, but more importantly, start running its centrifuges. All right, Jay, let me push back a little bit. I totally agree, by the way, that there remains huge conflicts in interest between Iran and the United States in the Middle East. And there's any number of places where there could still be a conflict and we're not out of the woods at all. We can't even really see the end of the woods. But you, what do you, is it plausible that what President Trump did did change the dynamic in a positive way in terms of the tit for tat of recent events between the two countries. We did we have we've had near military episodes with with the drone, with the Saudi uh, oil facility, with attacks on the direct attacks by Iranian supported militias on the US embassy in Baghdad, that's sovereign US territory. I mean, we did that does seem to have stopped at least as of the time we're talking right now. Is it plausible that 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 there's actually a good impact here? I think we just don't know yet. I think you would need a crystal ball to be able to see what's going to happen. I could be right. You could be right. The other factor here that we haven't talked about, of course, is Iran's accidental downing of a Ukrainian airliner, which seems to actually be the completely unexpected action that has really changed the entire dynamic, right? So protests Iran, all over Iran, right. so people, Iran, people naming the Ayatollah right. as, as staying, right. saying he should step down. That's it's right. kind of amazing. So the outrage uh, in Iran that followed Qasem Soleimani's death was, you know, and kind of this nationalist feeling in Iran was completely eviscerated, not by the fact that they made a mistake even, but more so because they lied about it to their own people. These were mostly Iranians and Canadian Iranians that were, were killed, 176 of them on this on this, uh, on this this aircraft. And the, just the sense of, palpable sense of, of offense that the Iranian people have taken, resulting in, as you said, demonstrations not just in Tehran, but outside of Tehran this week. All right, Jamil, do you want to uh, 
close us down on this this portion of the podcast before we go to the uh, legal authorities question? Yeah, no, I mean, to be clear, I don't think that this is the end of the Iranian response. Um, I think that certainly they are likely to uh, engage in some of the types of activities that Jody and Dana just talked about. In particular, I think the threat of a of a of regional uh, terror attacks are more likely. I think the potential attacks against tankers in the Gulf uh, are likely. Uh, but I think most likely, actually, is a potential uh, domestic cyber campaign or, or, or a heightening of the cyber threat here in the United States uh, because Iran is able to dynamically adjust that threat up and down, uh, how much they utilize it. Um, it's also plausibly deniable in the sense that Iran wants people to know they're responding, but they also want to be able to sort of suggest, well, maybe it wasn't us, right? And so uh, they've used that tactic in the past before. In some ways, their use of proxy forces, uh, like Tab Hezbollah gives that, in that same top cover. We know it's really the Iranians. Uh, they want us to know, but they also want to be able to sort of, you know, plausibly deny it, at least publicly. And so cyber gives you a lot of that uh, capability, uh, that dynamic ratchetability um, that that uh, that terror attacks and, and, and physical attacks have less have less of. So I think that's certainly uh, the case. That being said, I think there's no question uh, that the Iranians are chastened uh, by President Trump's aggressive response. Um, And that is exactly what deterrence is about. Um, The reality is is that for a decade, we have not deterred Iranian behavior because we have not effectively responded. To the contrary, we've called the Iranians, right? We use economic sanctions, right? And that's about it. That's our only tool. Um, and that to them, you know, while they are certainly under pressure because of the sanctions, uh, they see it as, as, as and does as the rest of the world, as a demonstration that America is unwilling to use its own military force uh, to respond. And they got that same sense from President Trump in the way that he talked about uh, the to ending endless wars. So while ending endless wars sounds like a great theory and who could be opposed to ending endless wars, what it really is code for around the world and the way our enemies look at it is a retreat from the world by the U.S. Um, and an unwillingness to hold the line and, and exact real costs. And so the sooner we stop talking about that and the sooner, uh, you know, the sooner Donald Trump stops talking about that and the sooner politicians on Capitol Hill stop talking about that, the sooner the U.S. will be taken more seriously around the globe. Dana, um, quick counterpoint. What I'm going to say here um, is I agree with Jamil that the Iranians are chastened, but because of the wild unpredictability that in their view of what the range of American responses would be, the taking out of Qasem money was probably not one they considered. And in terms of deterrence, part of establishing deterrence is that your adversary understands exactly where the line is. And this was such a wild option, in my view, that I'm not sure they understand where deterrence is because the next time they punch back, if they do it in such a way that President Trump feels compelled to, to respond, the only option after taking out Qasem Soleimani is strikes inside Iran. And then we're off to the races in a true escalatory ladder. And so for me, this is where I can't, I cannot say that deterrence has been restored, although I certainly think the Iranians have been chastened. I, I, I'm just, uh, I'm just going to, I'm less, less, uh, Jody will happily point out that I'm less well Form than you are, Dana, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that I think the killing of Soleimani is the one thing the Iranians really did understand. They're thugs. They operate with violence. They get what this means. Jamil. Yeah, and look, I, I, I agree that they didn't expect it to happen, right? But now that it's happened, in a little bit, there's a little bit of the madman theory, right? They don't know what Donald Trump's going to do, and he might do something crazy, and they don't want a war. I don't think we're off to a war in the Middle East if we strike in Iran. It is a war they lose every single time. They don't want that. They know that. I think we're actually, I think this is the right play, an aggressive one, a potentially escalatory one, 
but a win at the end of the day. All right. Exit question for this segment. It's a yes or no question. Is the Middle East more stable now than it was two weeks ago? Jamil. Yes. Jody. I think that's a simplistic question, but no. Dana. No. I'm going to vote yes. All right. So we're evenly divided on the more stable Middle East. Let's flex to uh, the legal authorities for President Trump's actions. The administration has come up with just about every explanation under the book for its the legal authority it had to kill Qasem Soleimani. It, they referred to the 2001 AUMF, uh, which was came a week after the 9-11 attacks. They referred to the 2002 AUMF, with, which authorized U.S. action in Iraq. They've referred to Article 2 of the Constitution. They've referred to, amazingly, the War Powers Act, giving them that authority. Uh, so uh, the Congress has responded. The House, the, controlled by Democrats, has passed a War Powers resolution that would limit the president's authority to act vis-a-vis Iran. Uh, there's a there's a similar or identical measure in the Senate authored by Senator Kane, who's very interested in these issues, as we know, uh, that that uh, may have privileged position in the Senate floor this week or next week. So where where do things stand in terms of the legal authority for the president to act here? Who wants to go first? Jody. All right. So let me just say this at the outset. I'm not I think there's a lot of confusion about what legal authorities exist and about what actions Congress can and can't take. So Congress was clearly surprised by this and is clearly worried, at least on the Democratic side, about an escalation of U.S. use of of force against Iran. This is actually not new. They tried to do this uh, in the NDAA uh, earlier this year as well to put some constraints around Trump's ability to take uh, military action uh, against Iran. Having said that, I want to say those. So those are there's the resolution that you mentioned last. Right, this is by Alyssa Slotkin. The interesting thing about that bill, it's a House concurrent resolution. That's actually not in the proper form for War Powers Oops. resolution action for reasons I don't quite uh, I don't quite understand. The counterpart bill in the Senate, SJ Res sixty three, Senator Kane's resolution actually is uh, is in proper form. And it would, you know, put constraints on the president's ability to uh, act. Just, so hold on just one to, second. Just I to remind, say our, well, here. just to remind folks, the concurrent resolution doesn't go to the president, right? It's only it's only a joint resolution that ends up going to the president's desk. Perhaps she was trying to avoid pre- the president having a, even right. getting so a version of this Right. So that's that's just it. The House concurrent resolution can't be signed, and, and hence it can't actually take effect. So the really even putting that aside for a second, even if SJ Res sixty three Senator Kane's resolution was to pass in the Senate in the House and go to the president, aside from being vetoed. I think there's another really important piece here that people aren't talking about. Both of these bills have an exception, if you will, for the need to use imminent force, right, in the event of of the need to protect U.S. forces or to defend the United States. And that imminent force exception, if you will, is basically an enormous loophole, right? That you can't, the Congress can't get around. But it's also, but it's also what's been the discussion between the Congress and the executive branch in all of these briefings. You know, the the, the National right. Security Cabinet went up to brief the entire Congress in classified form, and Democrats came out and said we got no evidence of an imminent threat. All the Republicans said, boy, it sure seemed imminent to us. So there's a real disagreement about it seems what imminent means. Right. There, has, there absolutely is a disagreement about whether or not this this action was necessary legally it doesn't matter so much i mean it matters but any white house can make this argument about the need to use imminent force and there is nobody who is in a position to adjudicate the reality of that need to act 
Jamil, uh, my my chief counsel friend, uh, my uh, law school professor friend, my buddy who advises Supreme Court justices, as far as I know, jump in here on the legal authority. Does any of this matter? Well, so to be clear, we're, there's no advising Supreme Court justices. They they make their own decisions. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, they're just staff that work for them uh, for a short period of time. Um, so, look, I mean, I think the president's authority is clear. Uh, the U.S. was attacked by Iran uh, repeatedly over and over again, um, and the president has clear authority to respond to attacks uh, against uh, Americans. Uh, every president in the modern era has asserted that authority, including Barack Obama, um, and has utilized that authority um, without going to Congress, without seeking authorization for the use of military force. Uh, the president doesn't need it, doesn't need to go to Congress, um, and can certainly uh, respond to an attack and can also uh, uh, seek to deter future attacks, uh, particularly if they're imminent. Uh, that The standard of imminence is an international law standard. It has no grounding in U.S. law. Right, the president has com- the commander in chief authority, um, and it's long been understood. Um, and every president, Democrat and Republican, has asserted the authority to act without Congress. That being said, Shmiel, are you saying that the president doesn't ever have to go to Congress, or if he only doesn't have to go to Congress where there is a need to act imminently? There is an argument that the War Powers Resolution is unconstitutional, and the president never has to go to Congress other than in the case of a uh, where he needs a declaration of war. Right. Now, there the is consti- that argument. Is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is that certainly in this case, right, where the president conducted a, a drone strike against uh, Iran to kill Qasem Soleimani in Iraq, the president absolutely did not need to go to Congress. And he can conduct further activities just like that repeatedly if he wants to um, and does not need to go to Congress. That being said, the president might be wise to go to Congress, right? Congress would be wise to authorize this activity, um, but it need not. And to the extent that there's this joint resolution, you're exactly right. Uh, The president will certainly veto it. Congress will not – well, it was unlikely Congress will have the votes – to override it. Um, that's why I think uh, 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 Congressman Slotkin introduced a concurrent resolution, which, by the way, a concurrent resolution, it's essentially a strongly worded letter from Congress. It's nothing more than a piece of paper that both houses pass uh, that tells the president what Congress's opinion is. It has no legal effect, as Correct. you correctly point out. Um, and that's why Kane went with the joint resolution. But the joint resolution is ephemeral. It's not, it's not, it's not going to get enacted into law. And if it does get enacted into law, Congress won't stand by it because if the president does end up deploying troops in violation of uh, the joint resolution into the region, Congress will almost certainly continue to fund them. And that, as a later-in-time law with the funding re- decision, will end up permitting this, this right. co- to continue. And so, you know, people talk a lot about, oh, you know, Congress is going to stand up and stop the president from going to war, right? But the fact of the matter is the Congress likes to talk a lot. They don't like to act a lot. And unless Congress is really willing to pull funding from actual military activities in the region when the president decides to deploy military military forces, it's never going to happen. And Congress is never going to do that because the political well, ramifications are just fact, too great. Bernie Sanders actually introduced a bill last week that would do exactly that, which was to withdraw U.S. resources from any military activity uh, in Iran. But there is and, a... There was a political element. So I agree with you in the first instance that the president had the authority to undertake an initial strike. I do not agree with President Trump or, frankly, with President Obama's recurrent use of force under the same circumstances where you send up a new AUMF 
every time you take a military action every 10 days and pretend that the clock hasn't started ticking with the very first action. But there was a political element to this SJRS 63 that Senator Kane has put before the Senate, right? He's introduced it. There was a timeline for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to act or the resolution can be discharged. The way the, the, the situation on that committee right now, you have a 12-10 balance, Republicans, Democrats, and Rand Paul is going to side with the Democrats on this, which means, Jamil, you'll know this as counsel, you have a tie, theoretically. You are likely to have a tie vote, and a tie is a loss. That's right. Uh, and it still, it still can go to the floor, right? It can go to the floor. Um, and make it discharge exactly. and end up on the floor, which means you want to start talking about politics. Every senator, including all of those who are up for re-election, would have to take a vote on it. Well, let's, let's talk about politics for a second. Uh, somebody mentioned Bernie Sanders. I'm pretty sure he's not on the Foreign Relations Committee. I don't nope. think he's even on the Armed Services Committee. What possible role could he have? Oh, that's right. He's a presidential candidate. How is, how is this debate over legal authority going to impact the presidential campaign, if at all? Dana. So first of all, it's 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 basically the first time in the Democratic primary that candidates have to talk about foreign policy every single day. And largely this comes down to something where many of the presidential primary candidates and Trump actually were sort of aligned, which is on ending deep U.S. military engagement in the Middle East, the cliche ending U.S. forever wars, etc. And largely on the Democratic side, regardless of the fact that almost all Democrats will say Qasem Soleimani was a horrible guy. Iranian support for terrorism is hugely destabilizing both in the Middle East and um, a challenge to U.S. national security, that the action of taking out Soleimani, how it happened, where it happened, and in the view of many Democratic members of Congress based on bogus intelligence, is actually more destabilizing and likely to get us more involved in the Middle East. So it's basically a perfect opportunity for Sanders and people who agree with him or are concerned about U.S. and military engagement in the Middle East to say this is in keeping with Donald Trump's reckless foreign policy decision-making. Judy. I'd like to put a question to the table here because I think it's important for people to understand kind of this legal authorities arena. Aside from the War Powers Resolution, does anybody here believe that the 9-11 AUMF or the 2002 Iraq AUMF actually provides legal authority to the president to act against Iran? Well, Iran, Iran was... Uh, pretty much allied with us when we were fighting al-Qaeda in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. It's, it's really hard to see how you would even even the associated forces concept, which, by the way, is not that language is not actually in the AUMF. It is not. Uh, it's hard to see how associated forces would extend to the Iranians. I think I think the best argument for the president's authority is under Article 2 of the Constitution. He's the commander-in-chief. He's, he should be responding to threats. He doesn't have the authority to declare war, but he does have the authority to respond to threats. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that Article 2 is the best argument. Um, I don't think the 2001 AUMF at all covers this scenario. I think there's an argument a bad argument, like it was in the Obama administration, it was a bad argument, uh, that the 2002 AUMF may cover uh, this activity under the same theory the Obama administration trotted out, right? Uh, the, the 2002 Iraq AUMF uh, talks about the threat uh, from Iraq, right? Um, could you argue that the Iranian regime is so controlling of the Iranian government and 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 is conducting activities in Iraq uh, such that uh, an attack against an Iranian official 
actively involved in Iraq is a response to a threat from Iraq. It's a long stretch, but it's an argument you could make. And it's actually a better argument, to be honest, than the argument the Obama administration made uh, in arguing that the threat from Iraq uh, was ISIS, which was opposed to the Iraqi government, but just operating in Iraq. Um, and, and so I think that under the Obama theory, the, the Trump administration has a good O2 argument, but it's a bad argument writ large. Um, they haven't made it, by the way. It doesn't look like, at least. Um, and so I don't think it's a good argument, but it's one they could trot out under the Obama administration's incorrect earlier theory. Dana, quick counterpoint before we go to our I have question. a question. So, Jamil, if you were the legal counsel on the Republican side right now, would you have told the administration don't send up a war powers notification? Why Why do you think that their legal counsel inside the executive branch decided to send up a war powers notification Be- for this action? Yeah, because I think like the Obama administration in the early activities against ISIS, uh, their working theory is they don't have AUMF authority. They don't have the 01 or the 02 AUMF to rely on. And so they have to rely on Article 2. If they're relying on Article 2, the war powers resolution is triggered because it's a new deployment, right? Now, What's weird about it is there was a new deployment. There was no putting new troops in hostilities. In fact, under the Obama theory in Libya, there were no hostilities because nobody fired back, right, the Harold Co. theory. And so one might argue uh, that, in fact, there is no, um, there is no need uh, to send up an AUM, uh, a war powers notification at all. Um, but I think that, you know, it, it's not crazy to send it up. Uh, they set it up now. Uh, they've triggered the clock. I, by the way, I agree completely with Jody that you can't reset the clock by sending new a, new war powers notices up every so often, uh, which the Obama administration tried to do. But I think that at the same time, I do think that even if you trigger the war powers resolution, not one president, not ever, not once since the war powers resolution was enacted, has abided by its requirement to withdraw troops on the deadline. In fact, to the contrary, and Congress has never enforced it. To the contrary... Congress has regularly funded troops in regions after war power notification, and they went past the deadline. So so it's congressional acquiescence. Super fast response. Right. So the only thing that I think we all can walk away clear on is it is high time for Congress to reassert its authority in this space. Because you can't trust the the executive branch to do it for you. In the appropriate manner, which may not be under the War Powers Act. All right, so here's our exit question. I disagree. So exit question for this segment. What's what's the core basis for those who are opposed to the president's decision here? Is it opposition to the strike against Soleimani itself, or is it concerns about the legal authority under which he acted? Dana. Both. Jody. I think both, although I think in Congress you have a handful of members like Senator Kane who are very, very concerned about the broader question of, of, of the authorization of the use of force. Jamil. So I agree with Jody that there are a lot of members of Congress, and particularly in the Senate with Senator Kane, um, that are concerned about questions of Congress's role. That being said, in this instance, it is highly unlikely that anybody would have said the president didn't have the authority to act if they didn't disagree with the fundamental idea that this might be escalatory or thought that it might be escalatory, or B, because it's Donald Trump that's the one executing this operation. I think the idea the president doesn't have the authority to act is ridiculous on his face. 
every president in modern history, Democrat and Republican, has undertaken activities like this, and Congress has said boo about it. This is about Donald Trump and about thinking the cost of Soleimani strike was too aggressive. I'm going to jump in real quickly because he got two minutes. Number one, there's a long track record of politicization of the intelligence community and its analysis and assessment in the current administration. So it's not just about the president's Article 2 authority. It's about the bogus and mixed messages about what the actual threat stream was that led them to conclude that Soleimani needs to be taken out where he was when he was. I completely agree with you on that point, right? That being said, we have never, when we were up on Capitol Hill, we never got information from the administration about the details of what threats there were. Look at Anwar Laki, right? The, the, the question about whether there was an imminent threat from him. The administration never, that is never. The difference, the difference is intelligence versus military strikes. This nope. was Title 10 versus Title 50. E- either way, no. either way, either way, whether regardless of what authority you conducted under, right, there's no requirement. In fact, to the contrary, every administration, including the Obama administration, refused to hand over details of intelligence information about why they thought the threat was imminent. The same is true here. We can debate, and I will grant you, it is it is mortifying that the president said there were four embassies that were targeted. Mark Esper goes on the Sunday talk show and says, I never signed any intelligence about four embassies. That's a real problem for the administration's story. But the fact is the administration has never, no administration has given that level of detail to the Hill. They should. I agree with you. They absolutely should. But they've never done it before. And so holding Donald Trump accountable for that. I just don't think that that's true, Jamil. I mean, it sounds like a nice soundbite. I just don't think that it's true. And all of us in this room have sat in hours and hours of briefings and classified facilities where we have asked these questions of other administrations, just as members of Congress did last week with the Trump administration. It's it's true that this president is particularly prone to exaggeration. I think we would all admit <laughs> Understatement that. Understatement of the century. And I think what we and, and I think we could we could talk about we could have a whole podcast just on that, and I'm sure it'd be fascinating. But we or we could focus on what the national security professionals, Esper, uh, Pompeo, and the like, are actually saying on the record or behind closed doors, as much as we can tell, and and focus on that, which I think is is where the the real issue is. I'm just going to say my answer to this question is a combination of concern about the actual event itself, that it was escalatory, and then concern about the person who carried it out. I think there was there was an anonymous quote from a Democrat who said, uh, right action, wrong commander-in-chief. So I think there, the, and I think the legal question, the, the question of legal authority to, to act in this case is really not a real issue at all. Generally speaking, Republicans question it when Democrats are presidents. Democrats question it when Republicans are presidents. It's a stalking horse for other issues. I don't think it's really something that's material here. Okay, let's go to the final segment of this podcast, which is uh, where we talk about each one of us, we'll go around the room, each person talk about an issue they're following that's not necessarily in the headlines. Dana, do you want to go first? Sure. Over the weekend, the longtime ruler of Oman, the Sultan Qaboos, passed away after a long battle with illness. Reason this is important, Oman has refused to pick sides in most of the region's conflicts, instead positioned itself as a mediator. Many of you will recall Oman facilitated the notorious secret channel with the Iranians before there were overt discussions on the Iran nuclear deal. Um, Oman also has facilitated, facilitated talks on the Yemen conflict, a variety of things. 
also Sultan Qaboos was of the elder generation. Now we have this new generation, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Zayed in UAE, um, El Thani in, in Qatar, Amir El Thani. And so what we're seeing in the Middle East is this transition from the older generation, the elder generation to the next generation. And the question is, does policy, foreign policy orientation in Oman stay the same or does it change in a way that um, the United States and how we pursue our national security interests will have to adjust to? Jody. All right. So I thought that this the timing of this was really interesting, that Iran's only female Olympic medalist, Camille Elizadeh, she's a taekwondo athlete, defected. Uh, posting on social media, uh, I think over the weekend, that she'd left Iran because she didn't want to be part of, quote, the hypocrisy, lies, injustice, and flattery. And she described herself as one of millions of oppressed women in Iran. And she went on to talk about how the government exploited her sporting success while simultaneously making kind of nasty comments about her role in sports and use of her body in that way. The timing of it is really, really interesting as we're seeing the growth of protests uh, spread throughout Iran. Uh, she's somebody who, uh, be, I think, women in Iran, but people in Iran are really sympathetic to, and I think she probably speaks on behalf of a lot of women. So this is this is a story that wasn't in the political or world headlines, but was definitely in the sports headlines. It was on ESPN. There's probably more Americans who followed that story than all the other stuff we're talking about. But that's a great that's a great thing to bring up, Jamil. So kind of a dark horse story: um, the fact that uh, two of the, the the factions in Libya that are that are that are in conflict right now are in Russia. As we speak, uh, discussing a solution to the conflict, this yet once again uh, demonstrates uh, the failure of U.S. leadership globally, uh, the fact that people don't take us seriously, the fact that Russia, which is honestly a two-bit player, um, has so much influence in the Middle East, in North Africa, um, in part because of our failure to really reassert our our role in that region, even though we've lost a tremendous amount of, of, of American blood in the region. Um, the fact that, and, and frankly, a conflict that we kicked off uh, with our activities in Libya, um, I think actually rightly so, but you know, at the end of the day, um, uh, a problem that Russia is the one solving this problem and not us. You see the same thing happening uh, with Turkey and Russia and the conflict in Syria. Uh, these are not good things for U.S. role in, in the Middle East or in the world. Uh, by the way, the Chinese are watching this happen. Um, and that is, again, not good. And the Europeans are watching this happen. So yet once again, our enemies are less afraid of us. Our allies are less, are less confident in us. Uh, this is not a good sign for the United States. Okay, so the issue I'm following is Iraq for Iraq's sake, uh, which has gotten totally overshadowed by the conflict between the U.S. and Iran in Iraq. You know, there's an old African proverb, when, when elephants fight, it's the grass that loses. Well, Iraq is the grass. Uh, they have an acting prime minister who's on his way out. Uh, they had a vote to eject U.S. troops, but it was kind of a fake vote. The Kurds and the Sunnis all boycotted. Uh, there's still Iranian militias. Iranian-backed militias all over the place in Iraq. The U.S. is engaged in a lot of behind-the-scenes diplomacy right now with leaders in Iraq trying to keep everything together, something we should all be following because that's going to impact U.S.-Iran relations uh, and the U.S. role in the Middle East generally going forward. Okay, that's a wrap for our first episode of 2020. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. 